Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from Beautiful Joe by Margaret Marshall Saunders. Chapter 22. What happened at the tea table? From my place under Miss Laura's chair, I could see that all the time Mr. Harry was speaking, Mr. Maxwell, although he spoke rather as if he was laughing at him, was yet glancing at him admiringly. When Mr. Harry was silent, he exclaimed, "'You are right, you are right, Gray, with your smooth highways and plenty of schools and churches and libraries and meetings for young people and cheap telephones and free rural postal delivery, you would make country life a paradise. And I tell you what you would do, too. You would empty the slums of the cities. It is the slowness and dullness of country life, and not their poverty alone, that keep the poor in dirty lanes and tenement houses. They want stir and amusement, too, poor souls, when their day's work is over. I believe they would come to the country if it was made more pleasant for them. That is another question, said Mr. Harry, a burning question in my mind, the one of labor and capital. When I was in New York, Maxwell, I was in a hospital, and I saw a number of men who had been day laborers. Some of them were young men broken down in the prime of life. Their limbs were shrunken and drawn. They had been digging in the earth and working on high buildings and confined in dingy basements and had done all kinds of hard labor for other men. They had given their lives and strength for others, and this was the end of it, to die poor and forsaken. I looked at them and they reminded me of the martyrs of old, ground down, living from hand to mouth, separated from their families in many cases. They had had a bitter lot. I tell you, there is something wrong. We don't do enough for the people who slave and toil for us. We should take better care of them. We should not herd them together like cattle. And when we get rich, we should carry them along with us and give them a part of our gains. For without them, we would be as poor as they are. "'Good, Henry, I'm with you there,' said a voice behind him. And looking around, we saw Mr. Wood standing in the doorway, gazing down proudly at his stepson. Mr. Harry smiled, and getting up said, "'Won't you have my chair, sir?' "'No, thank you. Your mother wishes us to come to tea. There are muffins, and you know they won't improve with keeping.' They all went to the dining room, and I followed them. On the way, Mr. Wood said, "'Right on top of that talk of yours, Harry,' "'I've got to tell you of another person who's going to Boston to live.' "'Who is it?' said Mr. Harry. "'Lazy Dan Wilson. "'I've been to see him this afternoon. "'You know his wife is sick and they're half-starved. "'He says he is going to the city, "'for he hates to chop wood and work, "'and he thinks maybe he'll get some light job there.' "'Mr. Harry looked grave, and Mr. Maxwell said, "'He will starve, that's what he will do.' "'Precisely,' said Mr. Wood, spreading out his hard brown hands as he sat down at the table. "'I don't know why it is, but the present generation has a marvelous way of skimming around any kind of work with their hands. "'They'll work their brains till they haven't got any more backbone than a caterpillar. "'But as for manual labor, it's old-timey and out of fashion. "'I wonder how these farms would ever have been carved out of the backwoods "'if the old Puritans had sat down on the rocks with their noses in a lot of books "'and tried to figure out just how little work they could do and yet exist.' "'Now, father,' said Mrs. Wood, "'you are trying to insinuate that the present generation is lazy, "'and I'm sure it isn't. "'Look at Harry. He works as hard as you do.' 
Isn't that like a woman, said Mr. Wood, with a good-natured laugh. The present generation consists of her son and the past of her husband. I don't think all our young people are lazy, Hattie. But how in creation, unless the Lord rains down a few farmers, are we going to support all our young lawyers and doctors? They say the world is getting healthier and better, but we've got to fight a little more and raise some criminals, and we've got to take to eating pies and donuts for breakfast again, or some of our young sprouts from the colleges will go a-begging. You don't mean to undervalue the advantages of a good education, do you, Mr. Wood? said Mr. Maxwell. No, no. Look at Harry there. Isn't he pegging away at his studies with my hearty approval? And he's going to be nothing but a plain common farmer. But he'll be a better one than I've been, because he's got a trained mind. I found that out when he was a lad going to the village school. Education's a help to any man. What I'm trying to get at is this, that in some way or other, we're running more to brains and less to hard work than our forefathers did. Mr. Wood was beating on the table with his forefinger while he talked, and everyone was laughing at him. When you've quite finished speechifying, John, said Mrs. Wood, perhaps you'll serve the berries and pass the cream and sugar. Do you get yellow cream like this in the village, Mr. Maxwell? No, Mrs. Wood, he said. Ours is a much paler yellow. And then there was a great tinkling of china and passing of dishes and talking and laughing, and no one noticed that I was not in my usual place in the hall. I could not get over my dread of the green creature. And I had crept under the table, so if it came out and frightened Miss Laura, I could jump up and catch it. When the tea was half over, she gave a little cry. I sprang up on her lap, and there, gliding over the table toward her, was the wicked-looking green thing. I stepped on the table and had it by the middle before it could get to her. One of my hind legs was in a dish of jelly, and one of my front ones was in a plate of cake, and I was very uncomfortable. The tail of the green thing hung in a milk pitcher, and its tongue was still going at me, but I held it firmly and stood quite still. "'Drop it! Drop it!' cried Miss Laura in his tones of distress. And Mr. Maxwell struck me on the back, so I let the thing go, and stood sheepishly looking about me. Mr. Wood was leaning back in his chair, laughing with all his might, and Mrs. Wood was staring at her untiny table with rather a long face. Miss Laura told me to jump on the floor, and then she helped her aunt to take the spoiled things off the table. I felt that I had done wrong, so I slunk out into the hall. Mr. Maxwell was sitting on the lounge, chairing his handkerchief and strips and tying them around the creature where my teeth had struck in. I had been careful not to hurt it much, for I knew it was a pet of his, but he did not know that, and scowled at me, saying, "'You rascal, you've hurt my poor snake terribly.' I felt so badly to hear this that I went and stood with my head in a corner. I had rather be whipped than scolded. After a while, Mr. Maxwell went back into the room, and they all went on with their tea. I could hear Mr. Wood's loud, cheery voice. The dog did quite right. Some snakes are poisonous creatures, and his instinct told him to protect his mistress. "'Where is he? Joe! Joe!' I would not move till Miss Laura came and spoke to me. "'Dear old dog,' she whispered. "'You knew the snake was there all the time, didn't you?' Her words made me feel better, and I followed her to the dining room, where Mr. Wood made me sit beside him and eat scraps from his hand all through the rest of the meal. Mr. Maxwell had got over his ill humor and was chatting in a lively way. "'Good, Joe,' he said. "'I was cross to you, and I beg your pardon. "'It always rouses me to have any of my pets injured. "'You didn't know my poor snake was only after something to eat. "'Mrs. Wood has pinned him in my pocket, so he won't come out again. "'Do you know where I got that snake, Mrs. Wood?' "'No,' she said. "'You never told me.' 
It was across the river by Blue Bridge, he said. One day last summer I was out rowing, getting very hot, tied my boat in the shade of a big tree. Some village boys were in the woods, and hearing a great deal of noise, I went to see what it was all about. They were a band of mercy boys, and finding a country boy beating a snake to death, they were remonstrating with him for his cruelty, telling him that some kinds of snakes are a help to the farmer and destroy large numbers of field mice and other vermin. The boy was obstinate. He had found the snake, and he insisted upon his right to kill it, and they were having rather a lively time when I appeared. I persuaded them to make the snake over to me. Apparently it was already dead. Thinking it might revive, I put it on some grass in the bow of the boat. It lay there motionless for a long time, and I picked up my arms and started for home. I had got halfway across the river when I turned around and saw that the snake was gone. It had just dropped into the water and was swimming toward the bank we had left. I turned and followed it. It swam slowly and with evident pain, lifting its head every few seconds high above the water to see which way it was going. On reaching the bank, it coiled itself in the grass, throwing up blood and water. I took it up carefully, carried it home, and nursed it. It soon got better, and has been a pet of mine ever since. After tea was over, and Mrs. Wood and Miss Laura had helped Adele finish the work, they all gathered in the parlor. The day had been quite warm, but now a cool wind had sprung up, and Mr. Wood said it was blowing up rain. Mrs. Wood said a fire would be pleasant, so they lighted the wood in the open gate and sat around all the blazing logs. Mr. Maxwell tried to get me to make friends with the little snake that he held in his hands toward the blaze, and now that I knew it was harmless, I was not afraid of it, but it did not like me and put out its funny little tongue whenever I looked at it. By and by, the rain began to strike against the windows, and Mr. Maxwell said, "'This is just the night for a story.' "'Tell us something out of your experience, won't you, Mr. Wood?' Mm, "'What shall I tell you?' he asked good-humoredly. "'He was sitting between his wife and Mr. Harry, "'and had his hand on Mr. Harry's knee. "'Something about animals,' said Mr. Maxwell. "'We seem to be on that subject today.' "'Well,' said Mr. Wood, "'I'll talk about something that has been running in my head for many a day. "'There is a good deal of talk nowadays about kindness to domestic animals, "'but I do not hear much about kindness to wild ones.' the same creator formed them both. I do not see why you should not protect one as well as the other. I have no more right to torture a bear than a cow. Our wild animals around here are getting pretty well killed off, but there are lots in other places. I used to be fond of hunting when I was a boy, but I have got rather disgusted with killing these late years, and unless the wild creatures ran in our streets, I would lift no hand against them. Shall I tell you some of the sport we had when I was a youngster?' "'Yes, yes!' they all exclaimed. "'Chapter 23. Trapping Wild Animals "'Well,' Mr. Woods began, "'I was brought up, as you all know, in the eastern part of Maine, "'and we often used to go over into New Brunswick for our sport. "'Moose was our best game. "'Did you ever see one, Laura?' "'No, Uncle,' she said. "'When I was a boy, there was no more beautiful sight to me in the world "'than a moose with his dusky hide and long legs and branching antlers "'and shoulders standing higher than a horse's. "'Their legs are so long that they can't eat close to the ground. "'They browse on the trop of plants and the tender shoots and leaves of trees. "'They walk among the thick underbrush, carrying their horns adroitly "'to prevent their catching in the branches. "'And they step so well and aim so true "'that you'll scarcely hear a twig fall as they go.' They're a timid creature, except at times. 
Then they'll attack with hoofs and antlers, whatever comes in their way. They hate mosquitoes, and when they're tormented by them, it's just as well to be careful about approaching them. Like all other animals, the Lord has put into them a wonderful amount of sense. And when a female moose has her one or two fawns, she goes into the deepest part of the forest or swims to islands in large lakes where she stays till they are able to look for themselves. Well, we used to like to catch a moose, and we had different ways of doing it. One way was to snare them. We'd make a loop and a rope and hide it on the ground under the dead leaves in one of their paths. This was connected with a young sapling whose top was bent down. When the moose stepped on the loop, it would release the sapling, and up it would bound, catching him by the leg. These snares were always set deep in the woods, and we couldn't visit them very often. Sometimes the moose would be there for days, raging around and scratching the skin off his legs. That was cruel. I wouldn't catch a moose in that way now for a hundred dollars. Another way was to hunt them on snowshoes with dogs. Some winter days, when there was a crust over the deep snow, we used to get our dogs together and set out. Moose don't travel in herds. In summer, they wander about over the forest, and in the autumn, they come together in small groups and select one or two hundred acres where there is plenty of heavy undergrowth, to which they usually confine themselves. They do this so that their tracks won't tell their enemies where they are. Any of these place where there were several moose we called a moose yard. We went through the woods till we got on the tracks of some of the animals belonging to it. Then the dogs smelled them and went ahead to start them. If I shut my eyes now, I can see one of our moose hunts. The moose running and plunging through the snow crust, and occasionally rising up and striking at the dogs that hang on his bleeding muzzle and legs. The hunter's rifles going crack, 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 sometimes killing or wounding dogs, as well as the moose. That, too, was cruel. Two other ways we had of hunting moose, calling and stalking. The calling was done in this way. We took a bit of birch bark and rolled it up in the shape of a horn. We took this horn and started out, either on a bright moonlit night or just at evening, or early in the morning. The man who carried the horn hid himself, and then began to make a lowing sound like a cow moose. He had to do it pretty well to deceive them. Away in the distance, some moose would hear it, and with answering grunts would start off to come to it. If a young male moose was coming, he'd mind his steps, I can assure you, out of account of fear of the old ones. But if it was an old fellow, you'd hear him stepping out bravely and rapping his horns against the trees and plunging into any water that came in his way. When he got pretty near, he'd stop to listen, and then the caller had to be very careful and put his trumpet down close to the ground so as to make a lower sound. If the moose felt doubtful, he'd turn. If not, he'd come on, and unlucky for him if he did, for he got a warm reception, either from the rifles in our hands as we lay hidden near the collar, or from some of the party stationed at a distance. In stalking, we crept on them the way a cat creeps on a mouse. In the daytime, moose are usually lying down. We'd find their tracks in places where they'd been nipping off the ends of branches and twigs and follow them up. They easily take the scent of men, and we'd have to keep well to the leeward. Sometimes we'd come upon them lying down. But, if in walking along we broke a twig or make the slightest noise, they'd think it was one of their mortal enemies, a bear, creeping on them, and they'd be up and away. Their sense of hearing is very keen, but they're not so quick to see. A fox is like that, too. His eyes aren't equal to his nose. Stalking is the most merciful way to kill moose. Then they haven't the fright and suffering of the chase. I don't see why they should be killed at all, said Mrs. Wood. 
If I knew that forest back of the mountains was full of wild animals, I think I'd be glad of it, and not want to hunt them, that is, if they were harmless and beautiful creatures like the deer. You're a woman, said Mr. Wood, and women are more merciful than men. Please tell us some more about the dogs that helped you catch the moose, Uncle, said Miss Laura. I was sitting up very straight beside her, listening to every word Mr. Wood said, and she was fondling my head. Well, Laura, when we camped out on the snow and slept on spruce boughs while we were after the moose, the dogs used to be a great comfort to us. They slept at our feet and kept us warm. Poor brutes, they mostly had a rough time of it. They enjoyed the running and chasing as much as we did. But when it came to broken ribs and sore heads, it was another matter. Then the porcupines bothered them. Our dogs would never learn to let them alone. If they were going through the woods where there were no signs of moose and found a porcupine, they'd kill it. The quills would get in their mouths and necks and chests, and we'd have to gag them and take bullet molds or nippers or whatever we had, sometimes our jackknives, and pull out the nasty things. If we got a hold of the dogs at once, we could pull out the quills with our fingers. Sometimes the quills had worked in, and the dogs would go home and lie by the fire with running sores till they worked out. I've seen quills work right through dogs, go in one side and come out of the other. Poor brutes, said Mrs. Wood. I wonder you took them. We almost lost a valuable hound while moose hunting, said Mr. Wood. The moose struck him with his hoof, and the dog was terribly injured and lay in the woods for days, till a neighbor of ours, who was looking for timber, found him and brought him home on his shoulders. Wasn't there rejoicing among us boys to see old lion coming back? We took care of him, and he got well again. It was good sport to see the dogs when we were hunting a bear. Bears are fine runners, and when dogs get after them, there is great skirmishing. They nip the bear behind, and when he turns, the dogs run like mad, for a hug from a bear means sure death to a dog. If they got a slap from his paws, over they'd go. Dogs new to the business were often killed by the bears. "'Were there many bears near your home, Mr. Wood?' asked Mr. Maxwell. "'Lots of them. More than we wanted.' They used to bother us dreadfully about our sheep and cattle. I'd often have to get up in the night and run out to the cattle. The bears would come out of the woods and jump on the young heifers and cows and strike them and beat them down, and they would roar as if the evil one were mauling them. If the cattle were too far away from the house for us to hear them, the bears would worry them till they were dead. As for the sheep, they never made any resistance. They'd meekly run in a corner when they saw a bear coming and huddle together, and he'd strike at them and scratch them with his claws, and perhaps wound a dozen before he got one firmly. Then he'd seize it in his paws and walk off on his hind legs over fences and anything else that came in his way, till he reached a nice retired spot, and there he'd sit down and skin that sheep just like a butcher. He'd gorge himself with the meat, and in the morning we'd find the other sheep that he'd torn, and we'd vow vengeance against that bear. He'd be almost sure to come back for more. So for a while after that, we always put the sheep in the barn at nights, and set a trap by the remains of the one he had eaten. Everybody hated bears, and hadn't much pity for them. Still, they were only getting their meat as other wild animals do, and we'd no right to set such cruel traps for them as the steel ones. They had a clog attached to them and long, sharp teeth. We'd put them on the ground and strewed leaves over them and hung up some of the carcass left by the bear nearby. When he attempted to get this meat, he would tread on the trap, and the teeth would spring together and catch him by the leg. They always fought to get free. I once saw a bear that had been making a desperate effort to escape. His leg was broken, the skin and flesh were all torn away, and he was held by the tendons. 
It was a foreleg that was caught, and he would put his hind feet against the jaws of the trap, and then draw by pressing his feet till he would stretch those tendons to the utmost. I have known them to work away till they really pulled those tendons out of the foot and get off. It was a great event in our neighborhood when a bear was caught. Whoever found him blew a horn, and the men and boys came trooping together to see the sight. I've known them to blow that horn on Sunday morning, and I've seen the men turn their backs on the meeting house to go and see the bear. Was there no more merciful way of catching them than by this trap? asked Miss Laura. Oh, yes, by the deadfall. That is, by driving heavy sticks into the ground and making a box-like place, open on one side, where two logs were so arranged with other heavy logs upon them, that when the bear seized the bait, the upper log fell down and crushed him to death. Another way was to fix bait in a certain place with cords tied to it, which cords were fastened to triggers of guns placed at a little distance. When the bear took the bait, the guns went off and he shot himself. Sometimes it took a good many bullets to kill them. I remember one old fellow that we put eleven into before he keeled over. It was one fall over on Pike's Hill. The snow had come earlier than usual, and this old bear hadn't gotten into his den for his winter sleep. A lot of us started out after him. The hill was covered with beech trees, and he'd been living all the fall on nuts till he'd got as fat as butter. We took dogs and worried him, and ran him from one place to another, and shot at him, till at last he dropped. We took his meat home, and had his skin tanned for a sleigh robe. One day I was in the woods, and looking through the trees espied a bear. He was standing up on his hind legs, sniffing in every direction, and just about the time I espied him, he espied me. I had no dog and no gun, so I thought I'd better be getting home to my dinner. I was a small boy then, and the bear was probably thinking I'd be a mouthful for him anyway, began to come after me in a leisurely way. I can see myself now going through those woods, hat gone, jacket flying, arms out, eyes rolling over my shoulder every little while to see if the bear was gaining on me. He was a benevolent-looking old fellow, and his face seemed to say, "'Don't hurry, little boy.' He wasn't doing his prettiest, and I soon got away from him. But I made up my mind then that it was more fun to be the chaser than the chased. Another time I was out in our cornfield, and hearing a rustling looked through the stalks and saw a brown bear with two cubs. She was slashing down the corn with her paws to get at the ears. She smelled me, and getting frightened began to run. I had a dog with me this time, and shouted and rapped on the fence and set him on her. He jumped up and snapped at her flanks, and every few instants she'd turn and give him a cuff that would send him yards away. I followed her up, and just the back of the farm she and her cubs took into a tree. I sent my dog home, and my father and some of the neighbors came. It had grown dark by this time, so we built a fire under the tree and watched all night, and told stories to keep each other awake. Toward morning we got sleepy, and the fire burnt low. And didn't that old bear and one cub drop right down among us and start off to the woods? That waked us up. We built up the fire and kept watch, so the one cub that was still in the tree couldn't get away. Until daylight, the mother bear hung around, calling to the cub to come down. "'Did you let it go, Uncle?' said Miss Laura. "'No, my dear. We shot it.' "'How cruel!' said Mrs. Wood. "'Yes. Weren't we brutes?' said her husband. "'But there was some excuse for us, Hattie. "'The bears ruined our farms. "'The kind of hunting that hunts and kills "'for the mere sake of slaughter "'is very different from that.' 
I'll tell you what I've no patience with. And that's with those rich folks that dress themselves up and take fine horses and packs of dogs and tear over the country after one little fox or rabbit. Bah, it's contemptible. Now, if they were hunting man-eating tigers or animals that destroy property, it would be a different thing. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Visit our website at www.enchantedlibrary.net to see our past books or to connect with us on Facebook. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash enchantedlibrary. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.